Hello and welcome to the conversation. It is a pleasure to join you and have you join me in this, uh, what would be a shelter in place type uh, arrangement. It's a little different than we normally do it, but I'm very, very excited uh, about two great guests and we'll get right into an election that is so very important and exciting. Uh, Cara Eastman. Now, Cara, this is in Nebraska, the second congressional district. Uh, mm -hmm. There was another election there. You came very close to winning already. That's right, in 2018. I mean, it was within uh, one or two percentage points. Yes, 1.9%, uh, 4,945 votes, one of oh. the closest races in the country. It's just, um, I don't know, when it gets that close, I always, you know, it, it, it invites uh, scrutiny. But I'm very excited that you're with us today because I think your platforms, your priorities, and your areas of emphasis are those which we all should have. Uh, I almost don't know where to start, but but let's start with what you feel is most important. I mean, I know you have uh, you have plans for infrastructure, you have plans for public expenditure, you have uh, plans for um, linking the public and private sectors in various enterprises. Please go ahead and 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 uh, take the lead on that. Sure. Well, I'm I'm running on an end to corruption in politics, which now sometimes, given the current administration, seems laughable. But uh, you know, I I do not take corporate PAC money. I believe we need to end gerrymandering as a practice. Our own district has been victimized by it, as it is a fundamental threat to our democracy. I'm also running and have people having a livable wage again in the midst of a pandemic, more important than ever. Where. I've met, talked to people who are saying they, they actually are earning a little bit more on unemployment than through their job, which is crazy that they were paid that little, and uh, and expanding healthcare. I believe in a baseline of healthcare for every American, and that Medicare for all is the way we get there. So it's interesting you mentioned the pandemic because I think you're right. In a way, the pandemic has exposed a lot of these issues that you've been talking about, I think, for some time. Mm -hmm. expose them in a more naked way maybe than they've been exposed before. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it. I think the idea that you, I mean, each one of us, the vast majority of Americans are, are one financial hiccup away from complete disaster. And now we're seeing that, right? We're seeing where people are losing their jobs and therefore losing their health care, where they're potentially losing their housing. And, and, just an upheaval of American families. And, and this is unbelievable that, that we are all that fragile. Yeah, and, and when you look at these uh, packages, these relief packages and, and the rescue packages, uh, how would you as a legislator uh, campaign to make that money work for you in Nebraska? Well, I think, look, I think some of the things that have been done are good. Uh, there's there's one way that our current congressman failed, which is that there, some of that CARES money wasn't able to come to Omaha, the biggest city in the district, because of our population being just under 500,000, which is crazy. He should have fought for that. But to me, where we should have started is with workers, with small businesses, micro businesses, and then worked our way up, um, as opposed to the opposite. Of course, that's true. I mean, this is a, a relief package that's top down. It should be bottom up all the way. And that's, again... I think you're you have sort of a populist platform. I mean, I, I don't know why I say sort of it is. And uh, and so in that spirit, I'm sure you'd like to see a lot of these monies directed toward those people who need it the most before 
in line before, if you will, some of those big corporate interests. Right. And, and obviously, none of us wants to see any big companies go under because obviously they have a lot of employees. They do some, some good, right? Um, it's not that. It's just that when you have the president of the United States say things like, oh, well, small businesses will be okay, but maybe some of them will be under new ownership, that is a complete disconnect for these small businesses that might be legacy businesses where their parents passed down a restaurant to them or where this is something they built. I mean, they're hard work. It just undermines the dignity of working people. Oh, wow. That's a, it's a great point. I guess I don't take seriously a lot of what he he says, and, and frankly, I should, because I think his henchmen take uh, seriously what he says, or those people around him, I use the word henchmen, not you, but I, I'm just saying that uh, the, uh, the coterie of people who uh, respond to his every whim do take seriously what he says, and, and you're right. I mean, a, a lot of what he says, though, I think uh, falls into the category of empty promises, you know, and so even in the case of small business, I don't know that necessarily there's a commitment on the part of the administration to really seeing it uh, have life breathe back into it. Well, and, and that's what we've seen over and over again. Empty promises, investing in infrastructure hasn't happened. Lowering prescription drugs hasn't happened. Draining the swamp, my God, we have more swamp than ever. And that Mexico would pay for a wall didn't happen. Yeah, it's, uh, how do you hold uh, this administration? And, and by the way, it's not fair even to ask someone who's running for a congressional seat necessarily uh, this question, because I mean, you you need a coalition, you need uh, almost a movement, a legislative movement to hold a chief executive uh, uh, responsible for some of these things. But I'm just wondering what your strategy that you would bring to office might be about these various issues that you mentioned. Well, I think that's there. There are things. I mean, frankly, the question I get asked is: is if Donald Trump wins, uh, and and I win, how do we do that? Right. And, and the reality is there are things that Republicans care about, lowering the deficit, uh, investing in infrastructure, uh, you know, making sure that we have efficient, effective government. I mean, I think that's where we come together. But the, the, there's, the difference is I think we have a lot of politicians running for office saying they're going to compromise. They're going to they're going to do bipartisan stuff and everyone's going to work together. But there's a difference between compromising your values and compromising to get things accomplished. And I think that's something that I've been pointing out over and over again. It's like, I'm not going to compromise my values. I'm telling people who I am, what I stand for. And if they want me to be in office, that this is who I am. But, but I'm really tired of politicians saying stuff like, oh, we're all going to work together. But that basically means that they're just going to compromise their values to get reelected. Yeah, if if they even do that, I mean, I I don't, I mean, I think I think that that can just be pablum, you know, just so many so many words. I like the fact there's something about you that I really like, and it's that you come out of that world of nonprofits, don't you? You don't you have a background in that? Yeah, over uh, twenty speak years. Speak to that for a moment, because I think it's important, especially when it comes to uh, legislative office. Yeah, I, I've I've run nonprofits for over twenty years. I've been hired to start or save nonprofits. I've started my own nonprofits and. I, I think that nonprofits are an incredible um, kind of bastion of, of hope in terms of getting things accomplished. And, and often when I hear about things like, you know, how we need more affordable housing in this country, I think, well, putting that money in nonprofits' hands is a great idea because they're people who actually care about the community. They're connected to the community. And, and I'm really proud of the things that I've accomplished, working on policy, raising money for blighted neighborhoods, 
focusing on orphan diseases, running domestic violence and homeless shelters. And I think bringing that perspective and that worldview, and that's really the worldview that I've been given, and it's been an honor to be given by the clients that I've served. And having that perspective in Congress could be pretty great. Yeah, I think when you're tempered by that, as you no doubt have been, by those underserved communities in the nonprofit world, it has to have an effect. And as you say, you've been doing it now. I didn't realize how long you've been doing it. I knew you had a background in nonprofits, but I mean, for that length of time, I just think that has to filter into everything that you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's what I think about when I look at policies that are being developed of as how they're going to impact single moms in North Omaha who are living in crappy housing and, and struggling to put food on the table. That's the perspective that we need in Congress. What is the consistency of the second district there in Nebraska? Besides corn? <laughs> um, I love corn. <laughs> I think people just think Nebraska's all cornfields. But, uh, you know, this district, the second district is, and there are th three districts in Nebraska. This one is, it's 98% uh, urban suburban. It's made up of Omaha and the county we're in, Douglas County, and then part of the county to the south of us, Sarpy County. And uh, we are split between Republicans and Democrats, but a quarter of the electorate are registered independents. So who shows up to vote typically? Uh, typically, it's always voters, you know, people over a certain age. And uh, but we do have some bastions of, of voting in North Omaha, which is predominantly African-American and South Omaha, which is predominantly Latino. And uh, unfortunately, we're not seeing the uptick in young people voting by mail that we hoped for this time in the primary, but we did double Democratic turnout in 2018. And and we're seeing, you know, early voting through the roof this time, the, the ballot applications that are coming back. So there, there's still a lot of work to be done, but but it's definitely been increasing and and we need grassroots campaign like ours that are actually not just getting pe people out to vote for us, but actually just engaging in robust GOTV efforts to get everyone to vote. Uh, I mean, of course that's true. I think the challenge probably for you is even greater. You don't have the, the advantage of incumbency and you are dealing with this COVID-19 thing, which takes away retail politics and, you know, like having uh, town halls and all the ways you'd normally get your message across. In the last few seconds we have, how have you dealt with that? Well, we were lucky that we made a full pass at the district in the district at the doors before COVID hit. Um, but we have just reconfigured. We're making we made ten thousand phone calls in the district on Monday. So we've invested in technology to be able to make more phone calls. We we have a huge volunteer base, over two hundred people that are helping us. And we've just been really switching to phone banking. Um, I spend almost all my time making calls, and then we're doing a lot of stuff digitally. We're on TV. We've, we've, we're doing ballot chasing through mail. So we're doing everything we can. But yeah, it's definitely been a challenge because it's it's uh, you know new territory for all for all candidates, frankly. Of course, of course, that's true. Uh, Bakari Eastman, you've got so many great things going for you in terms of your values, your passion. I this one, I need you to win. So uh, good luck. <laughs> Uh, it's eastmanforcongress.com if you want uh, more information on Kari Eastman. It was really a pleasure to talk to you and meet you, even this virtual way. And uh, I look forward to good news out of your district. Thank you so much and stay healthy. Welcome back. I'm Mark Thompson, and it is a pleasure to have you back and a pleasure to have Mike McGee join us. Mike is dedicated 
uh, to kids, I mean, to the future. You know, he's uh, somebody who has uh, built an organization called Chiefs for Change, and they're dedicated to, as I say, uh, building an education and a rich future for a lot of kids who otherwise might not have it. So, Mike, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much. You can probably fill out a lot of the details. That's sort of the broad strokes on Chiefs for Change, but uh, it is, I think, uh, primarily focused in those areas, isn't it? It is. We have uh, just about three dozen members who are urban school superintendents and uh, chiefs of state education departments around the country. Uh, collectively, they serve about seven and a half million students. And it is really one of the most diverse coalitions of education leaders in the country in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of the political context in which they serve. So it's given us a a very good window into what everyone's dealing with right now. Yeah, we feature a lot of uh, political viewpoints uh, that uh, seem to lean progressive, of course, uh, on TYT. But one of the things about your world is that you really, you hear a lot about this, you know, bridge the gap and, you know, coalitions and political coalitions, but you really do that uh, on some level. It seems as though yours is a bipartisan effort. We try to. I mean, one of the things we feel like is that if we can uh, bring this community of education leaders together around a core set of beliefs about what needs to be true and what needs to change to serve every kid in America well, um, then our advocacy at the state level, at the federal level, is uh, going to be that much more compelling. Um, and we have been able to do that, including in this time. I think um, our members are aligned around a vision for true equitable access to learning, um, even in the midst of this crisis. Uh, you know, you say that I I struggle to find evidence of that. I struggle to find access that underserved communities have to education. You know, uh, the whole idea of oh, well, I'll homeschool my kids, or I will uh, they'll will be in a virtual classroom when a lot of uh, homes don't even have access to the internet or, or or whatever. I just use that as an example. You really know these underserved communities. It just seems as though that's an ongoing challenge that's underappreciated as a challenge. It's an enormous challenge. And I think many of the urban school districts that our leaders serve have made great headway over the last few years in serving all of their students equitably and serving them well. Uh, but this has been an enormous disruption. And I'll give you a couple good examples. Uh, in a district like San Antonio, Texas, where the vast majority of the students are low income, where the majority of the students are Spanish speaking students, um, they recognized that uh, having a real digital divide in their schools was an inequitable situation. And they didn't realize this in February when kids had to learn from home. They, re they realized it three years ago. So they began three years ago working to close that digital divide, getting Chromebooks to every one of their students, getting Wi-Fi in every home and over the last three years had made a lot of headway. They hadn't finished the job. And so when everyone had to shift to distance learning, they still had about a third of their students who were not connected to the internet at home. And they needed to get Chromebooks to about 5,000 students across the district. So they, they jumped on that. They spent $7 million to try to rapidly finish the job there. And it has made a difference in the lives of those students. Another area that we found has been key to equity um, over the last few years and has been even more, more important now is making sure that a curriculum across your system is of very high quality and teachers are well supported 
to use the best instructional materials effectively. Because what we find across the country is the students who are most likely to not have access to high quality curriculum that's rich and engaging and culturally relevant to them are low income and historically disadvantaged students. In districts that have had their act together on curriculum during this time, and where teachers have been working together, well supported by the district on good materials, we've found that they've been able to shift to the online environment more easily and more equitably. Um, and that's been encouraging, um, but there are still enormous inequities that our, even our members are dealing with. That's fascinating though. I have never heard until this moment a uh, curriculum mentioned in that way is such a critical element. And it sounds like it's, it's, it's a critical element in the way you describe it. It absolutely is. Uh, one of the things that we've found, and there have been reports on this recently, in, including a report called The Opportunity Myth, is that uh, low-income students and students of color are much more likely, regardless of their aptitude, to be given materials below their grade level and not only below their grade level, but materials that are not culturally relevant to them, not engaging to them. Um, so it is a, a real challenge that our members have been tackling over the last few years, um, and it's more important than ever now. Uh, were you on a call? I thought I saw something about you being on a call, a conference call type situation with the vice president, I'm talking about the current vice president, with Betsy DeVos, I think a number of other leaders. Uh, I mean, it was a, a collection of people that I might not have necessarily uh, thought you'd be naturally engaging with, but apparently those are the people you naturally engage with. It, it was, you know, I mean, our members, as I mentioned, have extensive reach. They serve millions of students and the White House and the Department of Education, um, you know, do have a real interest in our, our thinking around K-12 policy. So, I was invited to that call with the vice president and the secretary, and I welcomed being involved in that because there are some issues of federal policy right now that are critical to the lives of students. Um, the main one being um, the role that the federal government can play in getting all students connected to the internet. Uh, there's a program that's run by the FCC called E-Rate. Uh, it, provides federal dollars for school districts to buy e equipment for students, things like laptops, um, even Wi-Fi hotspots for their homes. Um, That's right. Ajit Pai was on that call, I remember. The FCC commissioner was on that call with you, wasn't he? Uh, I, I don't believe the commissioner was on the call, but it, it, was, uh, it was the topic that I wanted to discuss and, and had I a see. chance to discuss. And I'll just say one thing specifically for folks out there, anyone listening really can advocate on this and, and make a difference. Um, there are federal dollars for the kind of devices and connectivity that students need right now. The FCC rules say that schools and libraries can use this E-rate money to purchase those devices, but they cannot lend them out to students to use in their homes. Uh, it really is a set of regulations from a bygone era. And so that's a change that could happen quite rapidly. If they did that, it would really empower local public schools and public libraries to help out their communities right now. Uh, so we've been advocating for that and are still hopeful that that change is going to get made. Of course, that's, that seems like something that, what's required to make that happen? Is that literally legisl a legislative process that, that has to, to seek that end or is there any other way to make it happen more quickly? 
my understanding is the FCC can do it. Um, and then that would put Congress in a position to provide additional funding for that E-rate program and really be problem solvers on this front. As you, uh, let me ask you, uh, without getting too much into the weeds, uh, where are you on charter schools and the, uh, what seems to me to be an increasing emphasis on the privatization of education, which I think just widens the disparity. But that's, but again, you're the expert, not me. So, I, you know, we're a little unique in that um, our members all lead traditional public school systems, um, but many of them have very successful partnerships with public charter schools. Um, they've been able to make those relationships work and used uh, their charter school sector as a, a sort of an innovation partner um, to explore new ways of delivering education well and delivering it equitably and with an eye towards bringing those practices back into traditional systems. So we've certainly seen that work well. Um, we also believe that um, while there are many, many reasons to put your time and energy and resources into traditional public school systems, which is where our members are, um, there are real challenges in districts that are zoned for neighborhood schools, but in places that are uh, redlined based on their history of segregation. Um, so in a district like San Antonio, for instance, which I mentioned earlier, over several decades, uh, the middle-class neighborhoods of San Antonio, the largely white neighborhoods of San Antonio, left the school district. Um, and what you have now is a school district sort of shaped like a salamander. Um, that uh, is a real challenge in terms of funding and in terms of delivering other resources for kids and families. So we've seen smart ways to provide some amount of school choice to families um, for a number of reasons, including school integration, um, sometimes in partnership with charter schools and sometimes in, uh, just by doing that with your own innovative traditional public schools. So it's not either or. That's interesting to hear you say that. There can really be a partnership or at least an awareness of what's going on. I, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, Mike McGee, what a pleasure to meet you. Congratulations on your work. We have, uh, I think, the website up. And of course, it's uh, Chiefs for Change. You can always get a hold of Mike at uh, uh, McGee Jr. on Twitter, at McGee yeah, Jr. MC McGee Jr. That's my Twitter handle and uh, would love the follows. Yes, MC McGee Jr. Thank you. You corrected uh, corrected well. MC McGee Jr. I've been doing weekly updates. I'm going to do one tonight from the calls that we have with all our members about how they're dealing with the crisis. Um, I, I kind of give a long Twitter thread about what their latest thinking is. So uh, that's a good place to find that information. I'd love it. I can't believe we talked all this time and we didn't even really get into you know the, the challenges from an educational standpoint about COVID-19. That, that we'll have to say for next time. But uh, I'll look forward to your address uh, and seeing it and, and, and following you on Twitter as well. Yeah, Thanks, Mike. We'd love to come back anytime. Thanks so much. All right. I look forward to it. Okay. Thanks a lot, my friend. All right. And that's it for the conversation for today. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, bye-bye.